Welcome back to World War Now, everybody. I am your host, Conrad Franz, joined as always by Dimitri Kalyagin. This is episode 27. We're smack dab in the middle of April 2023. We're recording this deep in the heart of Holy Week, right before Pascha. So Christ is risen. That will, of course, have happened once you're listening to this. So I hope you have celebrated the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in the most wholesome, joyous, and, you know, festive of ways possible. Dimitri, how are you doing? Doing great, Conrad. Truly is risen. And to all those celebrating Easter, Pascha this week, I hope you have a wonderful Easter week and, you know, just enjoy these next 40 days uh, up until Pentecost because it's truly wonderful and you guys have all made it through Great Lent and the last great week before Easter. So um, definitely enjoy the time and remember there's no fasting this week, the first week after Easter. So, uh, you know, take it in, um, go easy on the news. Don't get too stressed by, you know, what you read in the media or what you listen about on various podcasts and shows. Just uh, enjoy, enjoy the moment, enjoy the moments of your family, loved ones and uh, church friends as well. So, and, and those of you... Of course, interested in orthodoxy, now's a great time to get involved because, you know, you have an entire year to look forward to preparing for the next Easter. So definitely start inquiring now because, yeah, there's definitely the next feast day is right around the corner. And uh, lots of news to get into today. Um, some, uh, you know, absolute surprising developments, to say the least, but uh, we'll be going all around the world today. Definitely Asia, Europe, touching upon the Middle East as well. So stay tuned. You know, the frog continues to boil. It's everything. World War Three continues to lurch ahead. And of course, this week, full of vindications for us here at World War Now when it comes to Odessa, when it comes to the stuff going on in Ukraine, as well as a few other things that, you know, we may have not directly predicted in more recent episodes, but have, if you watch our back catalog, are certainly things that we have anticipated, discussed, and broadly kind of brought to the fore when we present our ideas and present our speculation on what's going to come in the future of Europe, of the Middle East, of, you know, the South Pacific and some of these regions where the maps really are being redrawn, as we like to cover on this show. So I think we like to start, you know, we start in Ukraine a lot, but this is just kind of the most obvious vindication was, you know, there were some billboards last week in Donetsk about retaking Odessa. And again, it wasn't, let's... We'll be straight with the audience here, Dimitri. It wasn't the biggest story. We just thought it was interesting. It vibed with what we were talking about. So we wanted to bring it up. But now, you know, the Odessa talk has really gone to another level with all sorts of people, the Russian foreign ministry, as well as the head of her son, Vladimir Soldo. He, you know, being the administrative head under the Russian military government there in the occupied region, which is the majority, he has now talked about Odessa being likely liberated from the neo-Nazis. So these are all people that are in communication with the Kremlin, are in communication with the general operators of the special military operations. So this is definitely, I think, a big rhetorical development, if not just an objective kind of news war development that we should be looking for as we have been looking at this region for a long time. Yeah, Vladimir Saldo of the Kherson Oblast is really painting himself as the, the Ukrainian, or the, at least the Russian the Russian, you pro, you know, the pro-Russian Ukrainian uh, Ron DeSantis sort of 
figure, at least in terms of foreign policy. He's actually setting the tune. Remember we said before, the the one big push or the people actually promoting Russia's special military operation, pushing it towards the West, pushing it to actually you know, take more land from Ukraine, or at least like you know, I guess, liberate more of Ukraine from the neo-Nazi regime, as they see it, of Kiev and Zelensky, would be the locals, would be the people from Kherson, Zaporozhye, Donetsk, Lugansk, the four republics and their leaders, as well as those living in these republics who have, you know, they've had it, they've had their fill of uh, Ukrainian bureaucratic leadership from Kiev, and they just want to, you know, actually join the Russian Federation and have, live in a proper nation state. And so Vladimir Saldo is the governor of uh, of Kherson, he essentially um, has officially, you know, has officially called for Russia to, and he says, look, the prospects for the future are we're going to take all these cities, and one of them, one of the which one of the cities he mentioned and he made emphasis on was Odessa. He says, look, Odessa's Odessa will be the next target of Russia, and we we can't wait to you know reunite with Odessa because we are all part of Novorossiya. Novorossiya was the essentially the landmass. Uh, of southern Ukraine, the countryside of southern Ukraine, including Crimea as well, partially. That was it was it was named Novorossiya, essentially similar to how Transcarpathia is named named Transcarpathia. It's well, North Italy. You know, you have you have certain names to regions, and this region of Odessa, Kherson, uh, Nikolaev was all always called Novorossiya, at least during the Russian Empire and even during the uh, Soviet Union as well. So, calling the entire the entire countryside today known as Ukraine, calling it all Ukraine, would just be simply in appropriate geographically as well as culturally speaking. So Novorossiya, Odessa and Kherson do have something in common and it seems like the governor of Kherson really wants Odessa back and you know we spoke about this last week on it right so we made the prediction we said Odessa most likely based on the posters militarily speaking as well getting capturing Odessa for the Russian side will be a huge breakthrough it'll be the it'll really move this operation into its second stages you know Ukraine will be definitely on the back foot and not not just that but also world trade may be affected seeming that all the ports of Ukraine, all the civil ports, the exports of grain, fertilizer, and other produce, they're, they're always leaving uh, at least the shores of uh, the Odessa Oblast. So as soon as the Russians actually enter into that oblast and begin, uh, say, uh, appropriating territory legally or you know militarily speaking, there's going to be some big shifts in world, world powers and world affairs. And if that really occurs and Odessa really does get taken, that's really the dominoes on World War III are going to start falling even faster because think about it from all the lenses where we analyze this. Initially, you know, Transnistria, we, Pridnestrovia, we talk about that all the time. That will immediately be, will basically be connected at that point. If Odessa, the city itself and the whole surrounding oblast is taken, the connection with Transnistria will then have been made, giving now Russia a border with Moldova, who is, you know, pushing harder and harder for EU members than ever before because they realize it's getting less and less likely for Ukraine as they lose territory, but it may get more and more likely for them as they have yet to have any territory quote-unquote compromised. But I believe it is because of the whole Transnistria thing that they've never been eligible for EU membership and NATO membership because of that ongoing border conflict that they, I guess, in theory, if Russia takes it, would be resolved. So maybe then they would immediately be fast-tracked in. But then, of course, we also think about Turkey and the Black Sea rivalry I have a hard time seeing Turkey winning a confrontation with Russia on the Black Sea once Russia fully controls the entire, you know, the Slavic coast of of the Black Sea. I see that being a total victory. The the Black Sea already has become Russia's lake. It'll only be more of that once Odessa has actually been taken. So this is big. And the other thing being, of course, Odessa being one of the most relevant cities for the 2014 Maidan, for the the root of this this ethnic civil war, this conflict between 
you know, Russians in the East and more Ukrainian identifying Slavs in the West of Ukraine. Some of the, the there was the burning and, and the supposed crucifixion of these horrible atrocities that took place against ethnic Russians in Odessa, which served to fan the flames of this now, you know, on episode six of Ether Hour, which we've just released. Everyone should check that out about Givi Motorola, the early stages of the Donbass War. This was one of those events that would have inspired these men to have taken up arms and defend their people against what they perceive as, you know, genocidal aggression funded by, you know, Western Satanism. And of course, lest we forget, um, one of the major, you know, when the actual conflict began in Donbass, like you just mentioned, Conrad, Odessa had the had the uh, you know that that burning that took place right in 2014, right, which was probably we'd want to call it an esoteric you know human sacrifice, and Ukrainians themselves call it like a certain purging of Russianness, purging purging of the local Moscovites, which occurred in early 2014 in Odessa in the uh, I believe it was the House of the Unions, with I think several tens of people ended up dying in that fire where they locked up the pro-Russian protesters in a in a, one of the major government buildings and essentially set the building on fire and they had you know they had guns standing outside essentially just a, a rabble a a politicized ukraine pro-ukrainian rabble standing outside of guns threatening that if these people leave the burning office they're going to get shot and you know people ended up burning up inside and none of them were dignified of any funerals and it was essentially like a huge scandal of sorts now uh and remember in the aether hour episode which you know for all the subscribers and supporters you may have listened to it we recently where we discussed stilkov givi and motorola and some of the earlier days of the 2014 donbass rebellion against ukraine there were a lot of actual uh so-called separatists or pro-Russian Ukrainians from Odessa who didn't like what they saw in Odessa. And the only way to properly resist this uh, new Ukrainian Maidan reign tyranny and also Poroshenko, the, the new you know falsely elected president of Ukraine, was to actually travel from Odessa to leave their home city, go to Donbass, go to Donetsk and Lugansk, and actually serve over there in order to begin this um, sort of liberation of Ukraine from the east. So uh, there's a lot of pro, or at least eight years ago, there were a lot of uh, pro-Russian patriots, Ukrainian, ethnically Ukrainian patriots who supported Russia, loved orthodoxy, who wanted to fight against, say, this westernization of their homeland. They all traveled to Donetsk to fight on the front lines against the Ukrainian military. So this, so Odessa is, despite what people say, it's a very, oh, it's, it's in the west, it's in the west of Ukraine, so it must be pro-Ukrainian. Odessa typically is one of those cities which, at least eight years ago, was considered very pro-Russian. A lot of Russians went there for holidays, naturally, it's right on the, in the coast of the Black Sea. Historically, a lot of Soviets went there as well for holidays, including famous Soviet bureaucrats, political leaders, um, Khrushchev, Brezhnev, etc. A lot of people, and some of my family members as well. People love to travel to Odessa, so Odessa is pretty well known. Um, and it's a very pro-Russian city, similar to Kharkov, but of course, the landscape changes with time, as well as uh, the kind of political pros prosecution oppression that occurs in these regions does shift the sentiment. People become scared, the locals of Odessa, the city people, like, notice Kherson. The, the people of Kherson managed to put up a resistance against the local Ukrainians, which is why Kherson fell to the Russian forces quite quickly in 2022, but... What can be said about Odessa? The Ukrainians have been, you know, buffering it up. The the, the old governor of Odessa actually was a former member of the neo-Nazi Idar battalion. Recently, Zelensky did uh, force him to resign, but he would be, he did lead the Odessa Oblast for about uh, about six to eight months. So Odessa was led by a literal, <clears throat> at least the Oblast of Odessa was led by a literal former neo-Nazi from the Idar battalion. You can Google <clears throat> the Idar battalion's former leaders. All this information is available online. 
So Odessa has been, uh, the Ukrainians have been preparing it in some way, or at least the, the attitude of the locals to this possible coming Russian invasion, as they call it. And, you know, it's, a, it's technically a liberation, but they have been preparing the people of Odessa for this conflict since the earliest period. And Zelensky, too, has, I'm sure, all of the NATO chiefs of staff you know, involved and all the people on the ground in Ukraine, they've already, they already have a forecasted potential invasion plan of Russia. They know how Russia will invade Odessa, where they'll strike. It's just uh, when the ball falls into Russia's court, that's when in the shooting will start, you know, the shooting of the hoop. But not, not, any, not anybody or anything else but until then i think i think what's next is probably the ukrainian counteroffensive, which we discussed you know for a few weeks now but that's i think the next major event that will take place before I, we can speak about any sort of black sea fleet invasion of odessa well that kind of raises the question of geography we've talked about some of these different regions and why they've been liberated as fast as they have versus others and the prospect of others then being liberated and at what speed but of course, we've seen, compare the cities of Luhansk and Donetsk, Donetsk has been on the front line and had a you know, strong artillery trench line of Ukrainians up against it for years now, always shelling, always there, despite them not making any actual progress really towards the city, whereas Luhansk has been nestled well behind the front lines for a long time now, which is why it's been so much, so much more peaceful and has grown more in population compared to Donetsk, as people even from Donetsk have moved to Luhansk to be safer, but to still live in a relatively close region to where they you know grew up in their homeland but when it comes to zaporozhia which as dimitri said that's where this new offensive from ukraine is likely to come from which again i'm very skeptical of how successful this could be at all let alone i mean maybe it can't even get off the ground as certain malfunctions continue to happen but i think zaporozhia being this very flat agricultural region these big fields where people think they can run through less rivers to get over Dimitri, if you have any kind of analysis, especially when it comes to Odessa and even, you know, up into Kherson, Crimea going west and east with, you know, regarding the land bridge, how does that compare to geography, maybe even in Luhansk that has shielded that region and made it much harder for Ukraine to to take back? Well, I think historically, Ukraine was always about the waterways. It's always about the rivers. This is how Russian history essentially began when Rurik and the Rus and Oleg, you know, when they first traveled, when they first traveled these uh, rivers from the north, from the Scandinavian trading routes all the way to Byzantium. So the riverways are always a perk of Ukraine, except these days for, I suppose, military operations to occur on this land. And similar to how when the Nazis did invade Ukraine during the Barbarossa plan, they did also have trouble, you know, if not for their sort of blitzkrieg success they would have you know they would have had a lot of trouble surpassing some of these uh, rivers but in fact you know the soviet military really didn't put up much of a resistance in a lot of these areas as the ukrainian military is putting up now but geographically speaking we keep talking about zaporozhia and in fact i think we're being vindicated by the at least the russian military experts you know showing up on roy tv uh Zen tv some of these more famous uh, military analytical websites and youtube channels uh, at least in the russian language they are confirming that when the Ukrainian counteroffensive, which, you know, the Western media is pushing and discussing, and even Zelensky himself is saying that, look, we have the 100, 200, 300 tanks, all these mechanized brigades are all preparing, people are trained, and we need planes as well for air support for this particular operation. But the Ukrainians have prepared a large military strike force. They're ready. It's the, the bow is tense, so the bow is ready to shoot its arrow. Now, how long can they hold it and aim? That's the other question, probably until June. That's at least the forecast, the dates we're seeing. And May, June will probably be the if Ukraine doesn't strike before, like, I don't know, the beginning of July, it will be, the morale of their forces will probably deteriorate over time, showing the, 
I guess the ineffective leadership of you know Zelensky and his you know, military leaders, and also the fact that the military, you know, Reznikov was recently uh, Zelensky forced them to resign as well. So there's really there's a lot of uh, shifts going on. We mentioned you know, the leader of Odessa Oblast, the former IDAR battalion, the Nazi also also resigning. There's a lot of shifts going on in Ukraine. So in order to keep morale high, they do need this counteroffensive to succeed. Now. Back to geography, the one particular area where a lot of these tanks and all these mechanized brigades can actually traverse through without much interruption would be the at least the South Zaporozhye region. So the Zaporozhye Oblast in its entirety, as well as the South Donetsk Oblast, which now if I mention some of these cities, you might be reminded of the 2022 sieges. So somewhere north of Mariupol, south of, the, uh, of, of Donetsk itself, the actual city. So in that particular pocket, the Ukrainian military can in fact cut cut Russia potentially off at least at least if you look uh, if you look on the map they can cut Russia off from from the Crimean land bridge which would be and of course they can swoop in and take any sort of any areas concerning the you know regarding the Kherson Oblast as well at least from the Zaporozhye angle now this would be probably the best case scenario for Ukraine and this is the only potential you know, this is the only potential route they could use the mechanized brigades in their mast you know, that the West has provided because truth is you know, hundreds of tanks and hundreds of you know, hundreds of equipment units have been provided to Ukraine, but they just haven't used them yet. But we haven't seen many of these leopard tanks in Bakhmut yet. It seems that the Ukraine is simply sending in cannon fodder at Bakhmut or training some of its more elite units at Bakhmut, kind of sending them in and then forcing them to retreat. But Bakhmut definitely is a big uh, feedback cycle for the Ukrainians, at least testing out some of their forces, getting them battle ready. But yeah, when we do see the counteroffensive, it'll most likely be in the Zaporozhye. And you mentioned just some of these uh, Lugansk oblast areas Conrad. So the issue of Lugansk Oblast and some some of that northern area uh, around Kharkov as well. So Lugansk and um, Lugansk and Kharkov they are very much aligned. It's almost like Ukraine can also attack from that northern side, from that northeastern angle. But the reason why that's uh, that's somewhat a flawed, at least it stretched strategically, is because there's a series of rivers. It's called the Siversky Donetsk River, and it travels all around the Rostovsky Oblast on the Russian side, and it also dips into the North Donetsk and Lugansk Oblast. So some of these rivers are really, you really cannot, um, you're going to need uh, some sort of, not just a land invasion force, you're going to need uh, equipment to build temporary bridges, you know, a, a sort of um, pontoons, temporary ways. It needs to be a semi-amphibian operation, which I don't think the Ukrainians are prepared for. So def- definitely attacking Lugansk from the north, just because of the Siversky Donetsk River and some of its branches, is simply not possible geographically speaking. Now we talked about Kherson and attacking, you know, attacking from that, and again, just because of the waterways, most likely not a possibility. And look, the Ukrainian navy at the moment is simply non-existent. So the only advantage the Ukrainians do have is they do have a lot of mechanized Western units, which are mostly ground-based, army-based. So they do need to actually attack the Russians on land rather than on sea and rather than you know, traverse different rivers and such. Now, of course, the the goal that they've been speaking about politically as well, I do want to mention this real quick, is Zelensky for months now, and also people, you know, members of his members of the Verkhovna Rada in Ukraine, the the Parliament of Ukraine, have been speaking about taking Crimea. Crimea is the jewel that Ukraine want to take back, and it's the first oblast or the first region, the first peninsula which has left Ukraine early in 2014. So for the Ukrainians, Crimea is definitely a more, I would say, would be a more of a powerful statement if they do get it back by land which is definitely a possibility because the Russians, we haven't really seen many defensive structures put up near Crimea yet. There's not much footage. I'm sure there are. I'm sure there is, you know, things being built. You know, there are buffers, but then we know Donetsk, Donetsk itself and Lugansk are very fortified. 
uh, Crimea, how fortified is it right now against the Ukrainians? I'm not too sure. Right. So I definitely think Ukraine will be aiming to take that land bridge, you know, connecting uh, that entire southern area south of Donetsk and Lugansk first before sort of proceeding north into those really agitated eight year long sort of already uh, bloodied lands you know, of the Donbass. No, and unfortunately, we've we've lamented the, you know, the fall of Kherson City back to the Ukrainians many times on this show. But from the Russian perspective, remember, Kherson City it's of the smaller oblast capitals as well, you know, only about 250,000. But besides that, it's not the most important asset within Kherson. The most important thing in Kherson is the is the waterways connecting Crimea, allowing the river and the fresh water to flow into Crimea. Because for the past eight years before the SMO started, Crimea was in a major state of crisis. And since then, since the SMO started, I mean, there's been much less of a water crisis. So in many ways, being in Crimea... Your quality of life has probably objectively gone up since the special military operation started. So not that ideas of Ukraine taking it back weren't already, you know, ridiculous. But now, you know, the people there, there's really, you know, that soft pressure that was always there. Like, oh, well, if you rejoined Ukraine, you'd be able to, the water crisis would be over. You know, that's no longer there. Just as, you know, they hit the people in Donetsk with the, well, if you just rejoined Ukraine, the, the terror bombings would stop. You know, that's a real great way to negotiate, of course. the that's how that's how NATO likes to do it, we know, but there's yeah, the likelihood of all of these places then becoming Ukrainian again is is slim to none. We've 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 pretty much made that point since the beginning of this show. But yeah, with Vladimir Saldo and these others making this point, it's no doubt that there are it's becoming very much understood in all the powers and institutions in Russia that Odessa, that you know, the whole Black Sea liberation will be the plan. Which, you know, if you remember the chart, we've now moved beyond the, if that were to occur, we've then moved beyond the Russian Pyrrhic victory into just objective total Russian victory. So that's an interesting development, to say the least. But, Dimitri, unless you have anything else to say about geography, about the next offensive from Ukraine, the next moves from Russia, I'm thinking we maybe move to France, China, their kind of thing they've got going on with Macron. We know Macron recently visited China. And he's now been singing a bit of a different tune regarding the U.S. and the special military operation and negotiations and peace and, you know, who should be involved, which is all very interesting. So I think we'll get into that unless you've got anything else to tap us into. Yeah, I think before we move on to Western Europe, just want to mention for the listeners and a quick prediction. At least it's not my prediction, but running it down, Igor Strelkov recently did say that when Ukraine does begin its counteroffensive, and for all of you watching the news and following this very closely, you might want to pay attention. When the counteroffensive from Ukraine begins, there may be very small diversion strikes across the Russian border from the Ukrainian side. So we saw the, you remember the Russian slash Ukrainian neo-Nazis attacking the town of Bryansk and, you know, all the innocent people that have died there, the civilians, the, the boy who stood up for, who stood up to the attackers. And we might see more attacks of that sort across the Russian border. So Ukrainians actually dipping across the Russian border, attacking t- towns such as Bryansk, Belgorod, villages as well, just harassing the Russian line of defense. But notice the Russians don't actually have a line of defense because the Ukrainians have held to this standard, at least since the beginning of the SMO. They've said this is a war to Re regain the legal, the legal lands belonging to Ukraine according to international law. So um, they are they are holding this uh, virtue signaling sort of high ground here. At least they're signaling to the international community that we're not actually going to attack the Russian Federation, even though there's all the pretext to have this to have them like physically invade Russia. Like right now, you know, from the Ukrainian perspective, war has already been declared. But they are 
the Ukrainian, at least the Ukrainian strategy, their public relations strategy, their international law, you know, approach is to not attack Russia directly. It's to regain the territories lost. So that means Kherson, Zaporozhye, Crimea, Donetsk, Lugansk. So those five particular areas, which is why we haven't seen the conflict really spread across the border. We saw a few strikes on Belgorod, you know, one attack on Bryansk, but but the strikes may, of course, begin again once the counteroffensive is fully launched, only to distract the Russian military, or at least kind of spread their efforts to put out some of these fires. It's also one of the reasons why Ukraine hasn't attacked Belarus. Notice, even though Russians have been using Belarusian hospitals, they've been using Belarusian highways, especially during the early SMO in 2022, they used straight up Belarusian infrastructure in order to assist them in invading Ukraine, driving their tanks across Belarusian freeways in order to take Kiev. Like, this is obviously... A assisting and abetting uh, the Russian war effort, but Belarus was never physically involved, and Ukraine does not want Belarus involved because Belarus is not is, is an actual very, very serious country, and as soon as Belarusians are involved, this conflict may end very quickly. So Ukraine will not be provoking Belarus. They also won't be crossing any sort of public relations li- lines. They want to appear like the good guys in the eyes of Western normies, Western sort of the media, and also any, anybody else that they're you know, kind of invoking or aspiring to to police uh, or you know whose aid they're trying to accrue so i think that's just a quick message and people do need to look out for these things and perhaps this prediction will come true when the counteroffensive inevitably will will take place i think in the next uh, two months we always bring it back to belarus don't we i always hope everyone's you know taking their beetroot eating their beets enjoying their sauna time taking the health advice of bachka you know avoiding avoiding those pesky illnesses but again when we go to uh when we go to you, when we go to Western Europe and with China and France, despite Macron's insistence that U.S. France relations are stronger than ever, that seems to not exactly be the case. Macron is literally calling for Europe to be a third pole and kind of carve its own way when it comes to relations with China and its response to the China Taiwan question. Basically, openly saying we should not follow the U.S. into some war in the South Pacific with China. And it seems that China is feeling a bit vindicated in the midst of this because they've now felt emboldened enough to declare a no-fly zone due to their intensive military exercises around Taiwan, which initially I think it was supposed to be like a two-day no-fly declaration, but they were then reduced it down to like six and a half hours or so where I believe 33 flights out of Taipei are not going to be able to take off because of missiles flying and you know, artillery activity and naval activity. I believe there's a naval blockade, so like certain boats and shipping activities are going to be able to enter in. So China's flexing their muscles in the South China Sea and the Taiwan Straits. And, you know, there's been some talk that, you know, the U.S. is very much in a bit, a bit of disarray about the issue. It seems that Europe isn't willing to follow them in. Obviously, even the conservative side of the spectrum in America is much more eager to go to war with China than they are necessarily to go with go to war with Russia. It's kind of maybe the left-right divide in normie politics. Is, do you want to go to war with Russia? You're a libtard. Do you want to go to war with China? You're like a conservatard, which is just like a libtard going the speed limit. But I think what we see from Macron has to do a lot of ways also with de-dollarization that we've been talking about and just the general that combined with the failure of Ukraine and the Western project in the war to successfully, you know, ever since the Harkov counteroffensive, there's really been no W's. And it seems now that with the fall of Bakhmut, and again, with what we just talked about with Odessa, that we might see some fairly precipitous changes very quickly. And Macron, one of the things he's also been talking about since he got back from China, which happened on April 10th, I don't know when exactly you're listening to this, but that's 
the timeline we're talking about here. He has talked about China coming to the mediation table, which seems to me to be, oh, we now realize that Russia is going to take a lot more territory than we want. Let's bring China in real quick to start mediating to maybe see if they can just tone it down and not actually take all the all the territory that we now realize that they're capable of taking, which is all definitely a little too late from Macron on that. But it, I think if you analyze it that way, it really shows how bad the situation is for Ukraine because Macron was one of their staunchest allies, even until very recently. He was bizarrely loyal, I felt, considering France's sensibilities about Russia, about Ukraine, about that situation, and about NATO in general. France is not the most pro-NATO NATO country. For a while, Le Pen was able to openly campaign about leaving the NATO strategic command and other issues. She had to you know, moderate that when she became the nominee to be against Macron, but she was still very anti-NATO and anti a lot of the obligations that the alliance called for France. And that was popular. That's a popular position. You know, unlike countries like the UK, Germany, some of these other, you know, I mean, of course, the Baltic states, these are like NATO sycophant countries. France is not at all like that. So to see Macron walk this back isn't exactly, it's not surprising for him to be the one Western leader to finally break. If anything, it was surprising how lockstep he was despite the position of the public and his own personal unpopularity, as we see with the pension reform and the insane protests. Yeah, I think Macron definitely solidifying himself as the most capable, or at least the most capable pro-Western EU, pro, uh, you know, somewhat pro-EU leader, at least in the in the in the Euro, in the eurozone. Somebody who, with actual political weight, are capable of making diplomatic decisions based on the France's self-interest, not just the interests of, say, uh, Joe Biden and his um, State Department, as well as maybe what. what politicians in brussels have to say about things but you know maybe this is just his uh, miniature napoleonic complex right the, the man's a, the man's a bit strange to put it bluntly you know in his personal life as well as some of the things he said in the past so he's definitely not not a peaceful guy despite looking like a nice liberal leader he's definitely france does have the capacity remember in libya in 2011 france does have uh you know the capacity in terms of foreign policy to actually wage war and it is a very powerful military in Europe, like we, just, we were just looking at the stats, is probably the second strongest military in Europe after the UK. Uh, the third, in the third position, you'd probably have some something like the modern Ukrainian army. I think in its total sort of all the aid provided to it. So France has the capacity to sort of lead the lead the EU into its new age, possibly kind of separating itself, breaking off from this uh, conjoined twin situation with the United States where you have you have some a leader like Joe Biden applying all this pressure to NATO on the EU in order to sanction Russia, which doesn't necessarily even benefit the EU because we see Russia, especially with its recent inflation rate drops, which Russian inflation has dropped from eleven percent to three point five in the last week which is worthy probably of an economic podcast in itself, but we are not an economics podcast, but we will mention it. Just the fact that a recent uh, OPEC uh, oil production reduction has has meant that oil prices have skyrocketed, which means that you know Russia benefits greatly as a lot of its federal budget and a lot of its uh, national federal income does come from oil, fossil fuel sales, oil and gas sales. So Russian inflation, in fact, has fallen drastically from 11 to 3.5% in just a week, which is insane. It's you know it's, it, you could say it's monetary manipulation, but the Russian central bank definitely knows what it's doing, and the ruble is looking very strong at the moment. You know this is considering other NATO countries like Turkey with you know, over a fifty percent inflation rate and a looming election in just about a month's time. I'm not sure how you have an election with a fifty percent inflation rate. That's, I mean, I'm not sure what kind of discourse you could even have at that on that sort of ground. Uh, it doesn't seem very stable. But nevertheless, France, yes, uh, 
you know has its issues but definitely one of the most powerful states in europe at the moment a lot more a lot more powerful than germany in a military sense as well as economically speaking definitely up there also don't forget that france has the most capable navy in europe i just mentioned libya in 2011 france aided the united states and the u.s navy in the and in the in the mediterranean in destroying the libyan nation which was probably the most powerful developed country in Africa at the time, correct me if I'm wrong, Conrad, but Libya was, I think, up there in terms of military capabilities, like a flourishing economy, etc., had big prospects, but the French Navy essentially shut it all down, forced the no-fly zone back then, like almost a, more than a decade ago now, and uh, essentially sunk Libya into the Stone Age. So very, very, well, a lot of potential there. So definitely Macron's opinion on whether or not to cooperate with Joe Biden to talk with Z and actually discuss matters with China it has people like Zelensky sweating because if France takes that neutral position that Erdogan has taken over the last year, as well as now Xi Jinping, you know, not meeting up with Zelensky, Zelensky crying about it. If Macron joins that trio and kind of moves to this, okay, we're going to have a very moderate approach to this. Russia needs to come to the table. Everybody's an equal partner. We're back to actually calling each other partners rather than enemies and names. Zelensky's not going to like that because he's been running off off of hysteria, off of this mania of you know Russia's bad. This is the end of the world. We need to we need to use French nuclear missiles because remember France is a nuclear nation, not just in an energy sense. France does have I think the largest amount, the largest number of nuclear reactors in all of Europe, right? I think maybe second to only Ukraine and Russia, but maybe even more than them. Definitely its nuclear reactors are very modern, but France does have nuclear weapons, so let's not forget that. So Zelensky's sweating right now. Macron is doing what's best for France and in wake of the new pension reforms, which, again, we discussed that it's... The pension reforms were nothing compared to the ones that took place in Russia five years ago when Russia was, the Russians were protesting as well because they essentially wrote, increased the pensions by, like, six years for women, I think, which... This increase the pension age, that is. So there's, there's some considerations there, but definitely I'm not sure why the French people are protesting. It's probably larger demographic uh, cultural issues behind that. No, yeah, we've discussed that before where, you know, France, they've been on this protest cycle for, I don't know, it seems like like six years now. So the, whether whether they actually want a change of regime is honestly yet to be seen considering how long it's been going on. But there definitely is a very large anti-globalist contingency within France that, you know, at certain flashpoints always come to the fore and make their voice known and in protest. But the China stuff is is very interesting. China's looking very, very, very strong right now with their position in the Middle East, with now apparently their position in Europe. Apparently they're going to be making trades with European countries and Yuan and other things like this. With I think France had talked about that. So this is this is a big, big shift. The U.S. is is really slipping. It makes sense why, you know, if anything, if this is how the thing's going to go in peacetime, they would want to precipitate a war to, to, to maybe try to get the leg up while we still have total naval supremacy. But again, will the people even stomach that? I don't think so. Maybe the China, maybe I'm in the bubble and the hatred of China is really high up there, but I don't see people stomaching what it would take to really, to really win that war, especially if Russia and Iran made, you know, put in their effort to help and racketed things up in their in their zones of conflict you know this is that's world war 3 we're talking about in in a way that as a world war even like world war 1 and 2 weren't you know sure there was fighting in the middle east and north africa but nothing like what we would see if what we've been talking about on the show really goes down here in the next 2 to 3 years let alone 10 to 20 years what we're really going to be seeing worldwide so it's really 
it's really fascinating. This China no fly zone again. China, you know, they talk a big game and then they always end up walking it back a little bit. But these drills are unprecedented. And it comes in the midst of other crazy stuff going on within, I mean, this South Korea, Japan, North Korea, China, it's all very interconnected North Korean missiles flying over Japan. And that all doesn't happen without the approval of China, of course. And now we've seen an apparently an attempted assassination on the new prime minister of Japan, which remember, this comes two years after the assassination of the former prime minister, Shinzo Abe, who was, you know, a political giant in Japan, you know, a nationalist, you know, Japan has been this American vassal against China there, you know, that also competes against America for the market of cars and electronics. But ultimately, it sits there and our military is there knowing that it's that we have that place as a, a launching point against China, which is our self-professed greatest enemy right now. So that's really what's going on there. But between plummeting birth rates and kind of perpetual political crisis in South Korea, what's frankly is the rise of North Korea in the face of decadent capitalist destruction in the South, apparent political unrest in Japan where every prime minister is trying to get assassinated for all sorts of bizarre reasons. It seems that you know China really is rising in its region like that. And again, when we talk about China rising, I'm very much not afraid of China really taking over America, influencing America in a particularly negative way to the level that, you know, world Jewry or some other entities might. But I think China wants influence in its sphere, just like Russia wants influence in its sphere. It's not going to tolerate this nonsense in Taiwan. And it would really prefer not to tolerate the level of nonsense that it does in North, I mean, in South Korea and Japan. It doesn't want to invade those countries, but it doesn't necessarily want them to be giant United States military bases, which is something we always need to keep in mind. But Dimitri, I want your thoughts on both China and as Macron has talked about this, you know, strategic autonomy from the United States. Do you think he might start calling for something like an EU military or a more strengthened, you know, union of state, like maybe something like NATO, but you know, they get the US out of NATO or something. Who know I don't know. Like do you think that's a possibility? Because I know a lot of countries in the EU when that was started were like, no EU army. We don't want our citizens fighting in this like nebulous army that fights for the EU commission and goes and fights for conflicts that don't have to do with our country. Kind of like we hear from NATO. I guess just in relation to the EU question first, I think primarily those pushing for a united EU military that can kind of support uh, Article 5, you know, of NATO and kind of support the integrity of the EU, at least in the defensive structure. And maybe when NATO falls apart, the EU can kind of function as its own mini NATO of sorts. I think those pushing for it aren't necessarily the big countries such as France, because France can actually defend itself quite well. It has a very capable military uh, standing alone. Now, those countries who won't provide, say, the equipment and the and the funds are countries who are in a much poorer state. So we have countries like Greece, Italy, Spain, which are countries with huge populations. They can probably provide the troops, similar to how a country like Bangladesh provides something like 10% or maybe more than 10% of all United Nations troops, even though Bangladesh itself has a relatively weak military, right? You'd think that's pretty weird. So you have a lot of United Nations peacekeeping forces actually come from the poorest countries in the world because all they can provide is manpower. Similar to here, it's like countries like Italy, Spain, Greece. I mean, what exactly can they provide financially speaking and technologically speaking? Probably not too much. Manpower-wise, they can provide you know uh, forces. Now, France will probably need to bankroll this entire military, so I don't 
necessarily know if France really wants to do that here. But countries that would would love, of course, a united mil EU military would be countries such as Poland and the new Baltic states, countries such as Finland. You know, these countries getting involved in the EU, maybe those are right on the borders in Scandinavia, these uh, sort of uh, very... Um, which have certain attitudes, especially towards Russia, you know, the Baltic states and Poland in particular. We've seen the recent tweets from the Polish politicians, Medvedev, the former Russian president, responding to them pretty actively, and Elon Musk getting involved. There's a pretty fun dialogue happening online and social media at the moment. But Polish politicians are really showing us that despite Poland having a certain right-wing conservative leaning, there is a military sense in where Poland actually wants to wants to at least uh, guaranteed safety because Poland does feel like it's next, at least on the chopping block, even though, frankly, Russia, I don't think, at least coming from a Russian perspective here, I don't think Russia wants any sort of peace of Poland at all. Like, frankly, you know, uh, Poland is not at risk, but they do feel at risk and they probably want the rest of the EU to get involved. And Poland is probably on the uh, on the most dangerous border of the EU, if you're frankly speaking, now that North Africa is completely neutralized and doesn't really have any capacity besides sending illegal immigrants across the Mediterranean to cause any any sort of distress in europe i i do think france most likely despite what the politicians may say i don't think it's in france's best interest to actually seek a united eu military because the, it will ta be very taxing on the french people it will also be taxing on the germans but i don't think the germans realize that now uh especially given the Nord Stream one and two projects you know being terrorized and destroyed i, I think the, the germany and notice we haven't mentioned germany much just because the prospects for germany in the future at least of the rising inflation the lack of gas they're quite bad. So Germany will be leaving, I suppose, leaving the EU in terms of leaving the foremost positions in the EU very soon, at least over the next five to ten years if the EU stays around. Yeah, it's it's quite bad. So that's kind of my my thoughts on that particular matter. I, I don't even know if Macron may say, you know, you, you, Europe must be united. I don't think the French people want to bankroll this whole operation. Uh, I think it would be quite a disadvantage, but... Yeah, I'm not sure what you think about that, but it's it's. I mean, it's still up in the air, honestly. No, no, it definitely is. But I want to get your thoughts on China before we move on to their opinion on it. Are they real and everything? And you know, now there's a 21 year old, I guess, ortho related guy arrested. So we're going to get into that. If you don't have anything necessarily to say about China. Oh no, the the, China, the Chinese events, of course, are huge. China's essentially exercising an, an entire naval, an, an entire naval show. They're, at least they're calling it military. They're calling it official military exercises outside of Taiwan. Essentially, in the Straits, uh, essentially putting on a show. The U.S. is sending more troops, more equipment to Taiwan in order in order to, in order to bolster its defenses. But again, China is flexing its muscles, as you said. There have been, of course, strange happenings in Japan. Just the recent assassination, which happened uh, merely minutes ago, as we began recording, so we don't really have many news about that. But of course, most notice most of this Eastern East Asian terrorism. It's not really coming from, uh, say, Orthodox or Catholic communities. It's mostly coming from religious sects. So so sects and cults related to some neo new ageish religions, some really anti-Christ aligned, even the Islamic uh, Uyghur terrorism, which occurred in China, it's very much uh, somewhat ISIS related, very 20th century, you know, it doesn't really go back further than that. So it's very a bizarre sort of terrorism, which is happening in Asia at the moment in Japan as well, Shino, uh, the former prime minister of Japan's assassination as well. But the other big event, I guess, that happened, the big news piece kind of got um shoved shoved under the radar a little bit was there was a big helicopter crash in 
Southern Okinawa, which was a Japanese military helicopter. And on board, there were uh, 11, oh no, nine Japanese uh, military personnel, four helicopter staff, including pilots, five elite troopers from a certain military army division of Japan. And of course, there was a general on board, General Yuichi Sakamoto of the Ground Self-Defense Force of Japan. Now, he's apparently a very, you know, high, very highly esteemed member of the Japanese military. I really haven't looked into exactly how much influence he's had over Japan, but he was essentially doing military operations in Okinawa at the time. His helicopter uh, left the airbase and crash-landed allegedly in the sea, just south of Okinawa. And notice Okinawa, if you look in the map, so just open up like a Google map, you'll notice Okinawa and Taiwan are very close. So there were Chinese ships in the vicinity. Japan, The Japanese parliament has officially announced a few days ago, this is in the middle of April, that the, you know, China had nothing to do with this helicopter crash. It was just a malfunction, right? And again, uh, helicopter crashes do happen. They, they occur throughout history. Like for us Orthodox Christians, the greatest probably in recent history, the greatest tragedy by helicopter occurred in 2004 when um, the Patriarch of Alexandria, Peter and his helicopter, I think it was Peter the Seventh. His helicopter crashed on the way to Mount Athos, actually, across the Aegean Sea. So he, I think it was flying from Athens to Mount Athos, and it was carrying on board the Patriarch of Alexandria, Peter. He was carrying on board three other Orthodox bishops, Metropolitan Chrysostomus of Carthage, Metropolitan of Pelusia, and another bishop of Madagascar, whose name was, I think, Nectarius, as well as Archimandrites, all these monks, priests, uh, and the Patriarch's younger brother as well, who was um, just, I guess, he was just a church historian. He wasn't even uh, a clergyman. But lots of monks, priests, and clergymen, as well as four bishops of the Orthodox Church, died in a helicopter crash flying to Mount Athos in 2004. I think this didn't really catch on to the news as well. So these helicopter crashes that were helicopters that just simply malfunction, fall into the sea. No one really investigates it. Uh, Greece announced that that helicopter crash in 2004 was, you know, a mal malfunction. It was a U.S. U.S. Uh, military helicopter commissioned and purchased by the uh, by the Greek military, and it was used to transport these church officials. But no one really investigated. Eighteen people died. Uh, there was a, you know, it was probably the greatest tragedy in the Orthodox Church until this persecution that's recently occurred and the schisms. Four bishops died, but nobody really got to the bottom of it. So, again, kind of esoteric. Helicopter crashes of important people seems to happen very often, and it's always they always crash to the sea, and there's always no survivors. So you kind of investigate it for yourselves. I'm just putting it out there. Very strange. Um, and, of course, nobody's, in, nobody's involved. It's nobody's fault. It's just the... The equipment itself malfunctions. So I think East Asia, definitely something to look out for. Uh, China flexing its muscles over Taiwan at the moment. Nothing really happening there in terms of uh, actual you know, military strikes. It's very much a Cold War sort of flexing, similar to what we saw between the Soviet Union and the U.S. over Cuba. Well, we know China has contingency plans for a myriad of military situations to completely dominate the island, as well as partial military diplomatic solutions. So... You know, they've gamed this out probably even more than the U.S. has, so we're very interested to see where that all goes. But, of course, now we have to talk about these leaks. There has been an arrest when it comes to these big leaks about all sorts of countries related to the Ukraine conflict. We had reported on the initial, I believe, initial certain batch of leaks, again, where, which information is in what leak and which is very confusing. But we had talked about the information about Israel, there's other information about a bunch of other countries in Europe relating to the Ukraine conflict. But since all of that, there has been an arrest of 21-year-old Ryan Texera, an Air National Guard soldier from Massachusetts, who I have no understanding as to why a 21-year-old Air Force National Guard soldier would have, like, Pentagon documents in Massachusetts. 
but here we are. A lot of this was leaked to a Discord group called Thug Shaker Central, where 20 to 30 people, mostly young adults and teenagers, bonded together over a shared love of guns, online memes, and video games. And apparently there was some involvement of someone interested in Orthodox Christianity. It might have been this guy. So, yeah, then he was arrested at his house, and like there was pictures of him just like reading a book in his backyard, which is suspicious if this guy really was the next Snowden or Assange. I'd assume he would have been trying to flee the country. So that's one of the that's one thing that the suspicious camp is has been talking about as far as why this might not be what they say it is, why these leaks might not exactly be as innocent and real as, as they really are, and why it might be, you know, all sorts of all sorts of different angles. But some of the information does seem to be true. So that has gotten some people talking. It's gotten you know, the, the airwaves are going, this Russia, the US are all talking about it. So this does seem to be a big deal. They mobilized and made an arrest pretty quick. So they're trying to send a message. Dimitri, I'm curious your thoughts on the leaks. Yeah, I think there's there's almost uh, two very two very solid positions on it. One, one position is that the leaks are fake, as in they're fabricated completely, but using a lot of real information. So the leaks, the leaks appear very realistic in terms of they even provide certain bits of the truth, but generally um, they are for you know fabricated for media or distraction purposes. So they could actually provide true facts. For example, the you know mentioning the fact that there are NATO advisors in Kiev actually um, almost advising the, the U, uh, Ukrainian military, but of course, as Russian experts have already said, the Ukrainian military essentially is getting micromanaged by NATO staff. So it's not like Ukrainian generals are in charge. No, it's like literally NATO, European, American generals commanding the Ukrainian troops. They're playing chess and checkers with them. So the Ukrainians aren't actually in control of anything. They're just cannon fodder at this point. You know, they're getting trained. NATO is completely in charge. At least this is what, you know, people, uh, people in the Russian, I guess in the Russian patriotic space believe uh, fully. So, and this, these documents prove that there are at least a hundred NATO special force advisors. At least they're not mentioned by name, but it does mention that there are at least a hundred specialized officer trainers in Ukraine at the moment from NATO, which means that if NATO staff are involved, how does that necessarily uh, implicate NATO officially, which NATO isn't in the war at the moment. It's not really supposed to be involved. But yeah, these documents do state that maybe for people who aren't aware that NATO and Ukraine are somewhat related, this would come as a surprise. It does mention that the um, Ukrainian military, uh, or at least the artillery side of things, the, the uh, in the army, there is a shortage of artillery shells. And this, this is why the Ukraine is requesting constantly more aid, at least from international circles. Of course, aid is requested from Israel and pressured by the US. We spoke about this last week, but Israel fearing that um, at least helping Ukraine visibly and explicitly will anger Russia and upset Russia is, is, of course, not something they're willing to do. Considering that north of Israel, we have Syria, who is Russia's probably, I would say, strongest ally in the Middle East at the moment, essentially almost a defensive satellite state of Russia. Syria, the Assad regime, they are very much aligned with Putin and his, um, you know, there are even pro-Syrian pro fighters fighting in Russia as volunteers. So that's essentially how involved Syrians are in the whole Russian affairs and in a very good way, you know, from our perspective. But nevertheless, the documents also state, I think for the Russian side, the the Rush so this is one sorry, this is one perspective, right? That these documents are fake, but they state a lot of true facts. And the reason why they were leaked is probably just to create more controversy. Maybe it's to scapegoat the entire Ukraine operation now that it's failing. So similar to how the COVID vaccine crisis, you know, once they realized the fourth and the fifth boosters weren't working, they kind of 
off track that they said, well, we'll just have to blame Pfizer or we'll have to blame a certain company for it. We can't really blame the governments for purchasing and mandating all these vaccines. We'll kind of scapegoat say Johnson and Johnson or AstraZeneca or one of these uh, you know organizations so they did they're going to try to derail the whole Ukraine train now that the operations and the defense of Ukraine is failing and Russia is actually standing its ground in Bakhmut and it stopped losing similar to what it was losing in late 2022 when Izum all these cities fell to the Ukrainian forces so now that Russia is actually standing its ground I think there is a, so there's a certain plan B emerging they're ready to sack Ukraine, and this can probably be one of those um, sacks that's saying, well, look, Ukraine is simply not capable of defending itself. It's just an incompetent state, as they've said you know, decades before uh, in a very um, condescending fashion. Now, for the Russian side, what's concerning is, and what if this document is real? It's concerning because there's the document stating, uh, you know, speaking about the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the special military operation, does, it does state very clearly that the, the U.S. has spies and intelligence in every single Russian department, including the GRU, the FSB, the Russian security forces in Moscow. So almost every single government department and military department in Russia, or at least those, you know, the equivalent of the CIA and the FBI in Russia are infiltrated by spies. <laughs> and they're feeding information to NATO, to um, US, uh, US intelligence, which is uh, realistic because, frankly, do you recall, guys, uh, a year ago, more than a year now, in February 22, when, say, around January or early February, everybody was saying, even even myself, I was tweeting, like, stating that, well, there's no way Russia's going to, you know, start an invasion of Ukraine. This is just fear-mongering. But we have, we had news sources and mass media, at least on the Western end, probably spoon-fed by agencies such as the CIA and the State Department, right? Spoon-fed information that Russia was definitely going to invade at the end of February, and they probably got this information directly from their sources on the ground in Russia. They were certain that Russia was going to invade, and Russia did, in fact, go along with its special military operation plan at the end of February. But we didn't have those direct sources. They did. So I do think I do think there's a certain truth to it and a very big concern. At least those um, those sort of Russian analysts have been very critical of the fact that, hey, if these leaks are real, the reality is that a lot of Russian infrastructure and a lot of these uh, Russian organizations, Russian agencies are directly infiltrated by the CIA, by NATO intelligence. It's uh, it's it's very kind of, you know, it's you have to kind of expect it. But uh, now that it's come out that, yeah, you're actually infiltrated directly, um, the implications on the future of the SMO are uh, are quite bad. It means that whatever plan Russia prepares, say, for example, this invasion of Odessa that's coming up in the future, maybe in the next few months, uh, the, the opposing forces, the NATO advisors, the Ukrainian military, they'll know uh, several weeks, if not months, before the actual operation takes place that it will take place and they'll have time to prepare for it. So that's kind of the downside of this entire thing. Well, we can imagine that the goals of intelligence state in the U.S. have, you know, there can be no more elite position than kind of being, you know, there's probably layers to it, right? There's certain levels of cover. So then those people get caught. It would reinforce the cover of the people above that who have people even above them. You know, I'm sure they have layers to it and everything where they and I'm sure the Russians have their strategy on how to counter that level of infiltration, because I doubt that this leak would be the first that a lot of them are aware of that. I mean, this is. We're in full-blown World War III intel. I mean, we've been in a world war in the intelligence state the entire time. That's why the quote-unquote peace has been here is because behind the scenes there's, you know, nonsensical, a lot less cool than James Bond activity going on by a lot less attractive people. If you really look at these intelligence people, none of them are standout attractive. I mean, why would they be? You're trying to have someone that's aloof. So there's like ugly Norwoods, you know, manlets and whatnot. But 
you know, no offense to our bald cells out there. You know, we respect, you know, it's a sign of, of wisdom and, and peace, the, the tonsure of the Norwood tonsure, as it's called. But I think, I think these, you're right when you say that what's the motivation, what would be the motivation for this being fake? And the only one that makes sense is as an off-ramp to the conflict for the U.S. to kind of do a soft reveal to the people of what's really going on, to be like, all right, we're throwing our hands up, we're done with with a lot of this nonsense, we realize, you know, kind of what's what's really going on here. But, you know, that, uh, who, who knows, like, maybe it's real, maybe it's, maybe it really is just some people dropping, casually dropping classified documents in a, you know, racist Orthodox Discord server, which, you know, I totally couldn't relate to in any way, shape, or form. But the, um... Unless you have anything else to say about these documents, I think, you know, this could... I'm very curious as to where the U.S. is going to go if, you know, the Dnieper is truly crossed as far as new territory gained by Russia and how they're going to save face on it, obviously. You know, maybe just taking it all out on China and just declaring preemptive war, like doing a, you know, false flag and saying China fired the first shot on Taiwan. And, you know, then we have a reinvent history war for the rest of time about what really happened. But... I think that's, you know, these leaks show, regardless of whether how true the actual leaks themselves are, the information, you know, does show that World War Three has been kind of going on the whole time and that it's not looking as great for Ukraine as, you know, many people. Have. So I don't know who's still in this, like, Ukraine bubble where it's all rainbows and butterflies and total victory. Slava Ukraine a victory, but I don't think anyone is... Uh, I mean, I don't, again, there's probably people that I've seen some Ukraine bumper stickers still. And there's like, I drive by this Honda dealership or a Nissan dealership on my way to church every day. And there's a massive Ukrainian flag flying below the massive U.S. flag. It's still up. So I guess these people still exist. But I think, I think that illusion, if it hasn't already been shattered for most, is going to be shattered relatively soon. Well, yeah, and, and who, who may be doing the shattering? It won't be Prigozhin with his big, you know, war mace hammer, but it'll be the U.S. State Department itself actually hitting hitting these normies on the head saying that, look, we've printed all these trillions, we've given Ukraine $150, $200 billion, we're leaving Ukraine, and this is how we're going to do it, because the illusion up until now was, well, Fox News, CNN, all these news sites, they're publishing absolute fake news, right? Like all these New York Times. Read any articles from 2022, the numbers you will receive from the losses that Russia was taking, even when Russian conscription began, when we started this podcast, right? Kind of in answer to the info war, right? Not being in the military ourselves, the only thing we can contribute really is uh you know contributing to the info war that's on the internet at the moment especially with major people getting censored we're not censored yet so we can at least expose the truth and speak about news but what i'm, what I'm trying to say is that there was so much fake news at least around for the last year and a half that i think people have been kind of disconnected from reality they've been told this is the normal middle class american or the normal middle class european has been told ukraine is doing great ukraine's winning how do you disassociate yourself from a winning side like why would you leave why would you stop supporting a winning team unless it hasn't been winning the entire time and it's just been the information has been falsified but now you're going to have to essentially come clean and give your confession without looking like the bad guy. So how you would do that is through, hey, we have this classified leak of how the circumstances are getting quite bad and dire in Ukraine. And it's exposed by a right wing young white patriot. So you can kind of divert, blame the white, you know, blame the white American people. Maybe if he's, he's Christian adjacent or something even better, you can blame like the, those Christian nationalist people in the US and, you know, blame them for being anti-patriotic, not supporting the Biden regime, etc not supporting um the minority Zelensky and his rule over Ukraine his, his tyranny right over there but 
yes, this is an off-ramp. It's a big distraction play. And it is essentially, it's it's kind of them. It's how they're going to, they've gambled. They've, they're declaring bankruptcy and they don't want us to see it because they're bankrupt on all the facts they've been feeding us about 200,000 dead Russians, about how the SMO was a complete failure. It's it's not a failure. It's had its fails, locally speaking. And yeah, it definitely had some ills. We're not going to deny that. Ugladar, Kherson, the whole, um, you know, the whole Kharkov front, you know, uh, Gostomel, of course, the, the huge tragedy, lots of tragedies from the Russian side, but it definitely hasn't been 200,000 Russian troops dead. So now they're trying to kind of, you know, just suddenly leave the casino without paying up. So that's what this is, I think. And I think that's probably the best prediction. Whether or not the information is real or fake, they're going to get the most out of it. Of course, we're watching how China will, quote unquote, get involved in mediations at this point. I think they're more than willing to let Russia take whatever it wants, but, you know, maybe they'll surprise us. But I think we want to talk about what's going on in Nagorno-Karabakh with Armenia, Azerbaijan, how that directly relates to what's going on in Iran. And it also directly relates back to Macron, who had really tried to inject himself in this conflict on the side of Armenia, which I believe was mostly a play to cleave Armenia away from the CSTO and Russia, who the Russian peacekeepers ultimately, I still think, side with Christian Armenia against Azerbaijan as far as the gradual encroachment on Nagorno-Karabakh goes. But the recent thing is Pashinyan, the guy who's still somehow in power, despite what seemed to be like a million different mass protests, coups, falls out, who knows, he's still there though. And I think it's largely due to Western backing. But he said that they now recognize Nagorno-Karabakh as Azerbaijan, which they didn't ever recognize it as an independent country per se, but he, Artsakh Republic being what it was, but you know, saying this is a big deal, which under normal circumstances probably would have made him immediately lose any upcoming election or whatever in Armenia. But I think in many ways he somehow feels protected and I think may even be retiring. So this is a you know relatively big deal within Armenian politics. And Azerbaijan continues, I think, to move forward. There's been, you know, dozens dead at this point and all sorts of clashes in the region, some I think even in Armenia proper. So, you know, this war has been kind of this border skirmish has been off and on ever since the 2020 war. But again, it's always, again, Russia is highly involved. And of course, we have Iran now being one of the reasons Armenia, I think, can stand up to itself more because it's more firmly asserted itself in the camp of Armenia due to its border skirmish with Azerbaijan as well as Azerbaijan's close alliance with Israel. There's really, it's really a double whammy for Iran as far as just wanting to squash Azerbaijan. Yeah, I think definitely the recent skirmishes in Azerbaijan, Armenia really don't say, don't speak very well about the whole peace situation. It looks like these two nations haven't gotten over there, at least the troubles they've had since last year in September when close to 100 troops were killed from both sides combined, essentially in local fighting, but even more, of course, in the years preceding that. But here recently, at least uh, in the last few days, at least seven troops from Armenia and Azerbaijan have been declared dead, killed in action, and a few more injured. So there has been a skirmish, and this is despite Russia actually having 1,000 peacekeeping troops um, at least, I, I believe these are probably qualified military professionals, not simply uh, law enforcement officers or anything of this sort. So Russians can spare 1,000 troops, ha- have them positioned in Nagorno-Karabakh on the Armenian-Azerbaijani border and sort of trying to keep the peace. But nevertheless, the Armenians and Azeris are still uh, shooting at each other, still, the you know, the provocations aren't done and you know the looming Turkish elections um coming up and Pashinyan's rhetoric you know just completely reckless I I'm not sure how long it's going to last in politics but definitely the um the president of Azerbaijan has a stronger stance on politics over there because he obviously he's a he's a sort of a dynast 
over there and Azerbaijan does have that uh, Zionist support it has that Western support it also has surprisingly Russian support as well so it really has everybody supporting Azerbaijan at the moment it's in the strongest position as Turkey Israel Russia the US the only country that isn't supporting Azerbaijan is Iran so the Azerbaijani lobby is super influential one of the I guess probably case studies of how to conduct yourself as a small nation uh, surrounded by seemingly en- en- you know enemies you have Georgia in the north in the north you have Armenia you have Iran and yet you kind of build this diplomatic these diplomatic ties with these large nations surrounding you in order to uh, bolster the future I guess the future of your little nation nation state you know kind of leveraging what you have a pretty pretty good case study for international relations and international law I think for the future but nevertheless Nagorno-Karabakh definitely a skirmish took place there um, again I think the ball is in Armenia's court it does need to and again I, I'm not even going to comment as to who Nagorno-Karabakh needs to belong to because both sides it's it's difficult right Conrad because both sides actually historically have a claim to the region and it's it's almost as if there is no real resolution to it. It's it's a much deeper conflict than even say the Israeli-Palestinian conflict over the, over that land. It goes further back in time. Like that's we're talking hundreds of years, at least five hundred years. We're talking the Ottoman Empire, even prior to that, and you know events such as the Armenian genocide haven't really helped. So there's there's blood the blood spilled over these areas, and it's 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 almost like the land itself is somewhat cursed. Like you know you kind of have to fight over like cursed Aztec gold here. Uh, it's a sort of an Eldorado of mountains in the Gorni Karabakh, the mountainous Karabakh region. Uh, you don't really who really wants to take it because you take it for a few years but in the next decades the other side is going to fight you for it. So I'm not really sure. Uh, it does look uh, quite bleak. Well, that's true. There's been video of arguments across the border in these regions where there's Azeris on one side, Armenians on the other side of them yelling about, don't do this to the house. Like when I live in it, like you're going to do this. And it's like, oh, but I'll live in it, blah, blah, blah. So it's like they're arguing about who built it, about all this kind of stuff. So what you're saying is literally true. But, you know, again, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to play, you know, I'm not trying to just be a defender of the coin Christians here, but I think they, um, you got to sympathize with them a little bit when you realize that I'm not saying pan-Turkism is the most popular idea, but if you think about like the that region of pan-Turkism, Armenia is basically just smack dab right there, just kind of in the midst of all that. Like if it wasn't for them, there would already be a geographic pan, you know, assuming that, you know, cross Baku over into, you know, true Central Asia and the rest of the stands, you know, with Kazakhstan. Like you could say maybe Georgia's in the way as well, but these are like the Christians in the, in the way of the true Turkish belt that could, in theory, unite and be this this menace that it has been for that that's that is that's that's the remnants of the civilization that has been a unfortunate underbelly for Russia in the past and even for Europe and you know for the Holy Land as well and for Greece of course if you consider you know the Ottomans the latest manifestation of that Turkish Central Asian kind of menace so in that regard I'm a bit sympathetic to the Armenians but not exactly with how they play politics and how their culture has moved, you know, with the West. But I think Pashinyan, I, I don't know his about his future in politics. I, I, I saw he was retiring. I guess he's somehow still in there and maybe he's just waiting for elections and someone else to run in his party or something. But yeah, no, I mean, I think Iran wanting to assert itself and feeling powerful with all of the Arab states kind of reconciling with it and almost kind of repudiating Israel, I think it's feeling confident. And I don't think... I don't think it sees Turkey as someone that's going to necessarily immediately go against Iran. Although that could change, especially if Erdogan loses this election and we see 
I mean, I was looking at the numbers. Erdogan's party, I think, is polling at 32%, which is the highest. But the three parties below that combined are well above 45%. And I believe that they've agreed in their coalition to all support Kilik Duraglu. So sorry for saying it wrong, David, but I, I can't say it the right way. But I think they've all agreed to support that, you know, libtard guy. So I, it does seem that in the polls that the big coalition, you know, the classic left-wing play of the democratic coalition, everyone unites against, you know, the right-wing popular strongman. And then, you know, then it's a fight to the death and we'll see. I'm, I don't know. I'm not really a betting man, but, you know, it could really go either way at this point with that. But unless you have anything to say about Turkey or caucuses in Iran, we have to talk about some of the schism stuff going on. I suppose just a quick mention in uh, in early in February of this year, I made a quick note. Um, I didn't publish it anywhere because, frankly, it's it's prognosis type futuristic speculation. But it does come from a very credible uh, expert of uh, Caucasian politics, and I'm not talking about white people Caucasian. I'm speaking about the Caucasus Mountains. So Georgian opposition politician uh, Levan Pirveli uh, is an opponent of Saakashvili. He ran against some of his party members for years now. I think he's a retired politician at this point, but he's still very much involved in pro-Russian Georgian politics. So he made a very interesting long-term prediction for that entire region. And I guess I'll just quickly um, kind of espouse it, summarize it. So essentially, Europe depends on Russian gas, right? Europe needs a long-term alternative without being dependent on this Orthodox Christian nation because Europe doesn't want to be Christian, or at least you know the people ruling Europe don't want it to be Christian. So they need an alternative energy source. Where do you re- retrieve the gas from? Turkey doesn't have enough gas, so what you need is Central Asian gas. You need a pipeline. A new pipeline project needs to be uh, Trans-Caspian in nature. So P- Levan Perveli claims that the new Zionist-slash-European-slash- Turkmenistan, it's Turkish, essentially, this big alliance of getting this gas line from Turkmenistan under the Caspian Sea, that's what he calls it, the Trans-Caspian Gas Pipeline, will need to take place. It does need to go through Iranian territory, so Iran would need to be completely destabilized for this project to go ahead, which is why we're seeing, I guess... it. Everything Levan has said, by the way, is coming true. So hence, I'm reading you this prediction. So he's saying that Iran needs to be destabilized, essentially turned into the Libya of 2011 and 12, where the country's in complete shambles. It's not politically solidified. It's similar to Iraq. And Levan's saying this pipeline will lead from Turkmenistan under the Caspian Sea through Georgia, which is a Western satellite country. You know, they've already applied for NATO and things. So, you know, they're not going to get accepted into NATO because they don't meet the criteria. And frankly, they're not North Atlantic at all in nature. So... But the gas line would go through Georgia. It would lead, of course, under the Black Sea, protected by Turkey, and into Romania, which is also NATO European, and Europe will receive Turkmenistani gas without Iranian interruption. Now, the only way to destabilize Iran is to, of course, agitate its proxy Ukraine-style nation, which is, as we said, the only one around the region is Azerbaijan. So that southern Azerbaijani, northern, northern Iranian um, border combined with uh, you know internal Iranian uh, Persian sort of dynamics you know maybe CIA Mossad type you know provocations inside of Iran could cause the destabilization of Iran as well as these this billion like we're talking tens if not hundreds you know tens and tens of billions of dollars this very expensive pipeline to be built essentially giving Europe infinite gas supply from Central Asia and it's completely controlled by NATO controlled by the EU so this is a long-term project prognosis 10 years 20 30 years into the future which i think the eu could be banking on or at least based on what levan preveli is telling us the pro-russian georgian politician so it's something to look out for a quick prediction 
the energy stuff is always really relevant to the underlying causes of a lot of these geopolitical events. So it, it's it's always relevant, especially with Nord Stream and everything that went on there and how how blatant, I guess, it seemed. I would have, I mean, I just wouldn't have guessed that that would have happened, but here we are. So it's always, and the energy stuff, I mean, again, had so much to do with, again, we really went into Iraq for Israel, but the oil stuff is still relevant and the petrodollar is still one of the main forms of U.S. domination and has, you know, been a part of the our mission in the Middle East for a very long time. But moving on to some of this more unfortunate news about the church and ecclesiology is the EP is spreading more the seeds of more schism. And we've talked about the Macedonia issue before. Of course, in 2022, the Macedonian Orthodox Church was reconciled to the rest of Orthodoxy as it had been in schism, this nation of over 2 million people. A lot of Orthodox Christians had been out of communion with the rest of the Orthodox family since 1967. But with Patriarch Porfiry, the new Patriarch of Serbia, him and the work of those before him, they completed it, and the Serbs issued a tomos and recognized the autocephaly of the Macedonian Orthodox Church. But now, due in what they claim to mostly be the name of the church being the issue, Greeks have this big issue with Macedonia, the country itself, even using that name. I think only the region of Macedonia and Greece can be called Macedonia. I don't really have a dog in that fight. I've heard it has to do with communism, and that's why the Greeks are against it. So, you know, you guys let us know in the comments what Greek nationalists we should have on to talk to us about Macedonia and other stuff from the Greek perspective. But what I'm 100% against is the EP going to Macedonia and meeting with the abbot of the Bigorsky Monastery, which has a wayward bishop in the Macedonian church and issuing a fake tomos of autocephaly to what they're now calling the Ochrid Archdiocese and completely eschewing Macedonia, making that be kind of the issue about the name and recognizing this little group of schismatics who have followers in Macedonia. So what had been a joyous, you know, reconciliation, and it still is, the majority will still be canonical. We seem to now have the seeds of more schism being sown. But the monks on Athos are making a stand as far as as far as schism goes, and multiple of the monasteries are refusing not just to concelebrate with, of course, the OCU, the schismatics led by Epiphany Poopmenko, but they're also refusing to even concelebrate with the other Athenites that have concelebrated with them. This, of course, comes uh, after Abbot Nicodemus of uh, Philotheo Monastery told the clergy from Pantocrator and Xenophantos, who those two monasteries, their monks, had chosen to concelebrate with the schismatics, Abbot Nicodemus told them that they couldn't serve with the with the monks at his monastery in the divine liturgy because of that. And they made a statement saying that, you know, they're not heretics or anything, but we're we're making this as a way to support the ongoing persecution of orthodoxy and, you know, make it clear that we don't support that kind of nonsense. Which again, for those that don't know, Mount Athos, in many ways being the spiritual center of orthodoxy, while being under the ecumenical patriarch, has always been a staunch center of resistance to the nonsense going on in the Fanar ever since, you know, the late 19th century and when a lot of the Freemasonic nonsense really started. So this isn't a big surprise, but as far as the, you know, monks that have and haven't recognized it, uh, the monks of Zografu, Helander, Karakalu, and St. Pantalemons all take the same stance as far as concelebrating with those that have served with the schismatics. And those are some of the major monasteries on Athos as far as the they're ranked in the system from 1 to 20 as far as their 
status on the council and the monastic government of of that holdout of the Byzantine Empire out there in Greece. But we're very grateful to the monks. It's been, as far as COVID and the other stuff went, so many of these monks, especially at, I know, Karakalu, Helander, they were so strong in resisting the vaccination, preaching out to world orthodoxy about the truth, about injections, about lockdowns and some of this other stuff. And now they're standing just as strong in the schism. So we're very grateful for them. And we, of course, keep the monks in our prayers and hope that they are enjoying their Pascha because, of course, I can't imagine a better place to be for Pascha than Mount Athos. Of course, another great place to be on Easter uh, this weekend would be Montenegro, one of the most orthodox, stoic, and dare I say the Serbian, the, the Sparta of Serbia. Montenegro is one of the most you know, religiously pious places in the entire world. Very small population, 600,000. We spoke about their election last week, and the new the, the new prime minister, I believe, uh, Sorry, the new president-elect of Montenegro, he is an Orthodox Christian, Yakov Milatovic, so he'll probably be with his uh, young children as well as his wife uh, celebrating Easter this weekend. But the message about Montenegro this on, on this podcast episode will be most likely about Yanikie II, the metropolitan of Montenegro, and Cetinje. The, the city of Cetinje, essentially, and forgive me, uh, Montenegrin Serbs, if I'm pronouncing it wrong, but this particular capital of Montenegro has been the seat of the metropolitans, the bishops of Montenegro, and Montenegro is a, is a very old Serbian diocese going back to the, I believe, the 1250. So around the time when the Crusaders took Constantinople, the uh, when um, that particular diocese was created for the people living in the mountainsides uh, of the you know the Serbian coastline back then. So this is going back 800 years almost into the past. So it's a very old diocese, and the new the new metropolitan of Montenegro, Yanikie uh, II, officially announced that. You know, Zelensky, as well as the Ukrainian government, has begun persecuting Christianity, and they've declared war not just on Metropolitan Anufri and some of the Ukrainian Orthodox and Russian Orthodox folks, but on Orthodox Christianity as a whole. So a very strong statement from the Metropolitan of Montenegro. And for those of you not aware, Montenegrin Serbs and the Serbians of the Montenegro Mountains, which is one and the same, it's synonymous essentially, they are the real tough cookies of the Serbian people. Of course, many many dioceses, many regions of Serbia are can be described as very tough, very hardy, and very pious. But the Montenegrins, definitely the some of the most Spartan and strongest people, both in faith as well as like physically throughout the centuries, at least since the 1700s, they've been, or even earlier than that, they've been resisting both the Ottomans, the Austro-Hungarians, the Venetians, just surrounded by enemies and always fighting back, always holding the line, at least at least defending their Orthodox people and they're defending the Orthodox people living in that area for hundreds of years now. Very strong people. And the, funny enough, when you think about uh, pro-Russian Orthodox people overseas, right, you'd think maybe about Serbians in general, or perhaps maybe some, uh, some portions of the Georgian community, maybe the Syrian Arab Orthodox folks, very pro-Russian, but I don't think any, any people on the planet can beat the Serbian Montenegrin people. They are the most pro-Russian population, historically speaking, between 1700 and 1917, at least until the end of the Russian Empire, and maybe perhaps before the onset of communism, they loved Russia to the point where every single Montenegrin bishop, at least, I, I believe almost every single bishop, traveled to the Russian Empire at one point to St. Petersburg, could speak Russian. Some of the bishops even served in the Russian military. They, they, they knew Russian military tactics, which they then 
copy and paste it into their own Montenegrin Serbian, you know, military affairs. They used, uh, you know, Montenegrin, like Montenegro is a very pro-Russian state diocese and country in just in all in culture. They've always loved Russia. So it's great to see the metropolitan supporting Russia and kind of just calling out the Zelensky persecution very openly. I think it's, it's a huge feather in the cap and it continues on this Orthodox local tradition of, you know, one nation, one diocese supporting the other diocese currently under persecution in Ukraine. Well, Montenegro as well has a very small, but unfortunately NATO supported and government supported, well, at least formerly government supported by Dukanovich, schismatic group who, you know, remember they protested when Patriarch Porfiry and the others came to Montenegro to enthrone the metropolitan that Dmitry just spoke about, Joanikihi, as if I'm, I'm horribly saying that incorrectly, I know. I've even been to Montenegro, a beautiful place. Ostrog Monastery would be, as Dmitry said, a beautiful, beautiful place to celebrate Pascha, no doubt. But, you know, remember they came when the patriarch came to Montenegro and he had to have like stormtroopers protecting him with shields and escorting him in via helicopter. It was pretty badass, but they were trying to throw things at him and they were lighting stuff on fire. But ultimately it spelled their end and now... The schismatic group has shrunk, but I can't remember where I read it, but I thought I'd read something semi-recently about some kind of what was like maybe a veiled threat or something about the EP maybe looking at the Montenegrin church, despite in the past having pledged to never recognize an autocephalous Montenegrin church. But again, I, I think that had to do with the fact that if they had to do with, they had said something about them confronting them in Macedonia, that then they might start looking at Montenegro, which is just such backhand kind of scummy behavior that has no place in the you know ecclesiological workings of the church but like we said it's serbia versus the ep in macedonia so perhaps the ep would view supporting the montenegrin schismatics as beneficial in that which at this point it's just getting so political that we can only say that the ep has has truly lost its way but unless you have anything else to say about the world schism that's going on in ukraine dimitri i think we have a few things to say about the situation in Ukraine, but then we can probably start to wrap this up. Yeah, I think the major point we need to add on this episode, and of course, probably very strange, controversial news, is that the the monks of the Kiev Picharsk Lavra and the a, a, a large portion of the bishops, including Metropolitan Onufri himself, have agreed to actually create and cook. Um, I, I guess that's the correct term, but yeah, definitely to to boil the, and to create and bless their own myrrh, so holy oil used in the church. Now, the permission or the right of blessing holy myrrh and holy oil is usually done in the capital city of the particular jurisdiction diocese, which you know, which makes up the local Orthodox Church. So, in the Russian-Ukrainian case, the tradition has always been the myrrh was made in Moscow. Even during the Russian Imperial period, when there was technically no patriarch, but the Synod of Russia was seated in St. Petersburg, sometimes it had meetings in Moscow, but the myrrh was always made in Moscow. And then the myrrh would be taken all around the you know, hundreds of dioceses around Russia, you know, to Kiev, to of Vladivostok, as far as, you know, Caucasia, to Kazakhstan, etc., all these different places. But the oil and the myrrh was made in one place and blessed. And this right to make myrrh and oil is very kind of unique and kind of isolated, and it's one of the rights of being an independent Orthodox autocephalous church. Now, for whatever reason, and at this moment we have to say that it's been unsanctioned by the Russia and kind of Metropolitan Onufri and his bishops took it upon themselves to create this oil themselves and bless it. Uh, the only time that's been done in Ukrainian history has been in 1917 when the the forces of the Kaiser 
in Germany. Of course, after Lenin has signed the shameful Brest-Litovsk, you know, the Brest-Litovsk uh, peace treaty, he gave almost half of, maybe pretty much 80% of Ukraine to the First World War era Germans, the Second Reich. So essentially, he gave up Ukraine to the Second Reich, and Ukraine at the time, its dioceses were controlled via an exarchate. And the exarchate was given permission one year, so in 1917 only, and this is amidst by the way, the Russian Revolution happening in Russia as well, they were given permission to actually create their own myrrh in Kiev. And this was the only time in history when Ukraine independently could, at least whatever the, the bishops of Ukraine, could also create myrrh at the same time as Moscow. And this sounds, of course, like we're nitpicking, and, but essentially what this could lead to is, and this is not me being pessimistic, but the reality is there are bishops of the canonical Orthodox Church in Ukraine who are very much Ukrainian. In terms of they don't like Russian history, they don't like the fact that they have this very post-Soviet, a very non-Russian outlook on history, on Russian culture. And this is not just bishops, but clergymen as well, okay, in the church, and as well as laity. Like, I mean, look at Ukraine right now. It's uh, <clears throat> A lot of these problems are coming from the laity. So essentially, it's a tr almost like a trickle-up effect. The bishops are affected by the conditions of the laity, and the laity are affected by the conditions of the culture and the media and the rulers of Ukraine who actually force these opinions into their brains, starting from, you know, school. Uh, and, of course, onto the media. And <clears throat> generally speaking, it's looking quite bad. I think the, the worst outcome that could happen, of course, this is a weird event to take place. I'm a little bit critical of it myself. It, it's, of course, it, it's not a huge sin of any sort. It is um, controversial, definitely, in terms of Orthodox history. It's really what it could lead to, potentially, I'll just get to the point here, is if Russia in any way or form loses the war, the SMO ends, and Russia does not control a large portion of Ukraine, including Kiev, there's a very high chance that those bishops who force their hand and actually push this idea of creating a smur will announce a full breakaway and a complete autonomy, if not autocephaly, of the Ukrainian church away from Russia, which would be a historical tragedy, frankly speaking. None of the saints have endorsed this. We speak about this often on Twitter. But Ukraine has always been a series of dioceses attached to Russia, similar to how Montenegro is essentially one, or you know, at one point it was one diocese, and now it's several dioceses attached to the Serbian Orthodox Church. They are united together. All right? This is the idea here, similar to how Thrace and areas of Anatolia and Greece and Mount Athos are under the Ecumenical Patriarch, despite geographically not being essentially in the same country. You know, this is state, national, nation-state borders don't necessarily dictate who falls under what church local jurisdictions. So this would be a great tragedy. So again, a lot of pressure on the Russian troops on the front line. Let's pray that Russia executes all of its plans properly in a Christian manner. And over this, over the next coming months, in a very orthodox fashion, they lead this entire thing and the persecution comes to an end, as well as all of these weird Ukrainian Ukrainianization leanings of some of the hierarchs of the canonical church in Ukraine, all of these weird um, Zelensky pandering tactics need to stop as well. So that's just my kind of, I guess, uh, treaties, uh, treaties on, on this particular issue. But uh, at the moment, of course, it immediately doesn't really affect anything. Everyone's going to celebrate Easter. Everybody's going to commune, confess, partake of the sacraments, and actually enjoy the next coming 40 days. But we just need to pay attention to what's happening in the news and, you know, just note certain details, um, you know, without necessarily striking judgment or criticizing our hierarchs. Well, I think we'll basically leave the content at that for when you're listening to this. Uh, I'm sure you're enjoying your feasting. Those of you who aren't Orthodox, I encourage you to perhaps look up some of what I'm about to say. We 
are about to I'm about to log off. I'm going to look at the holy fire situation that tells you about the time we're recording this. It seems to, I think it should be descending somewhat soon here within the next hour, two hours. So I'm going to have a gander at that. I'm sure when you're listening to this, it will have already descended. And the situation in Israel there where the authorities tried to limit the amount of people will have manifested and worked itself out. I pray that as many Christians in the Holy Land can make it there despite the satanic evil authorities' attempts to limit such practices and the manifestations of Christianity there. But I'm going to be checking in on that. I hope you enjoyed Easter. hope you enjoyed Pascha. Christ is risen. Listen to and read the Paschal Homily of St. John Chrysostom, anyone who's listening to this, regardless of your background. I can't encourage that enough. And I hope, again, you are basking in the joy of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And be sure to subscribe to us on Substack, of course, worldwarnow.substack.com. I'm on Twitter, GnomeRad. Dimitri's on Twitter, OCanonist. WorldWarNow underscore is the WorldWarNow Twitter uh, be sure to check out Ether Hour, our paid premium episodes, our last episode about Givi, Motorola, Strelkov, the origins of the Donbass War. Big, big episode, so don't miss that. But again, as I said before, Christ is risen. Truly is risen, Conrad. And to all the listeners as well, Christ is risen. We hope you have a great week. Enjoy the next uh, coming 40 days of Easter. Celebrate well. And we love all of you, uh, you know, friends, enemies alike. And of course, our supporters, thank you very much for the, you know, for the subscriptions, for reading our Substack, for giving the feedback as well, communicating with us. We really like the, uh, just the feedback cycle we've created. I think it's really efficient and the show's growing. And, uh, you know, thanks to you guys, frankly, if, you know, if we didn't receive any information about, you know, how to improve the show, essentially what you guys would want to hear from us, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be as good as it is. As it is. So we appreciate uh, all the support, guys, and have a blessed Easter. Uh, it's a great week ahead of us. I'm very excited for the Holy Fire. And uh, let's end the episode.